1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing Sam Smiles about his new book, The Late Works of J.M.W. Turner, The Artist and His Critics, which was published by Yale University Press in October of 2020. Dr. Smiles is Emeritus Professor of Art History at the University of Plymouth, and Honorary Professor at the University of Exeter. He received his PhD in Art History from Cambridge University, and he specializes in the history of British art. He is the author and editor of several volumes, including Late Style and Its Discontents, Envisioning the Past, Archaeology and the Image, and J.M.W. Turner, The Making of a Modern Artist. The book we'll be discussing today is an exploration of the paintings and drawings Turner produced from 1835 to his death. These are seen by many as his most audacious and compelling works. And in this study, Smiles shows how a richer account of Turner's achievement can be presented once his historical circumstances are given proper attention. By discussing the style of Turner's later oil paintings and watercolors, as well as his commercial dealings, relations with patrons, and accounts of his physical and mental health, Smiles explores what can be reliably said about this last phase of the artist's creative endeavor. Emerging from this study is an artist who used his final years to consolidate the principles that had motivated him throughout his career. I'm excited to discuss this book with its author today, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Sam Smiles, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's a, a great pleasure and a privilege to be doing this remotely, um, and um, we'll see how we go.
1: Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we will indeed. Well, thank you. And it's it's exciting, you know, to read New Scholarship on Turner. But before we dig into the book itself and how it came to be, I want to ask you the traditional first question on New Books Network. And that's just to ask you to share a little bit of your background with us. I wonder if you might begin by telling us but about yourself, where you were born, where you went to graduate school, maybe some on the career that you've had, how you became interested in Turner, which is of course the big question. Just take this biography background question wherever you'd like.
0: Okay. Well, I was born in a small town in England called Wokingham, which nobody's heard of, but never mind. That's where I first saw the light of day, and. Um, We can skip over the next few years where I did all the things that everybody does when they grow up. And I I went to university um, back in the um, early 70s. I'm trying to remember, 72, I think. Yes. And I began as a philosophy student. And I remember um, feeling this, this, this was the life for me and until I, I encountered classical logic and then realized this wasn't the life for me. Um, but fortunately, there was a course on aesthetics, which turned me right around. And I, I thought, this is wonderful. I don't know anything about this stuff, but it's good. And I, I remember ringing my parents up with great glee and saying to them, you remember you told me that philosophy was a completely useless subject? Well, guess what? I found one even more useless. It's called art history. I'm going to do that. And uh, <laughs> they, they, they were not in a position to, um, to withstand me. So, and Cambridge, bless them, were, were uh, very generous and allowed me to switch courses halfway through my second year. So I did that for a bit, graduated, and um, oh, then with that. my useless subject, got a career in advertising, um, which I managed to withstand for two whole years, um, making a lot of money but feeling morally wretched. And um, my supervisor, uh, when I was an undergraduate, when I wrote back to her sort of de profundis, saying, there has to be more to life than commerce, said, had you ever considered doing research? Which I hadn't. So, um, I mean, I've hitchhiked through life. I mean, this is just such a crazy story of good luck. So I went back to Cambridge and um, wrote a PhD. And then um, eventually um, after that, came down to Exeter, where I now live. And you ask, how did I get into Turner? Well, it was pretty simple, really. There was um, a conference I was going to in Canberra, and they said we'd like you to give a paper on on your PhD. I said, not on your Nelly. My PhD was so tedious it would probably result in ritual suicide of the whole audience. <laughs> uh, but I will do you something on Turner because I found out that there had been a. a a really unexplained patch of his career when people knew he'd gone to Devon but didn't know really precisely what he'd done there. So my long-suffering wife drove me around and we had a grand time identifying various sketches which no one had been able to place. And we would do simple things like saying, well, I expect he probably drank in that pub. What do you reckon? And we'd tootle off to the pub and have a think about life over a couple of glasses and then go off and find the next location. And that's what got me started. And as everybody points out, once you start on Turner, it's almost impossible to stop. There's endless amounts of stuff that needs to be cleared up, new interpretations to be offered, old interpretations to be combated. And although I've done many other things, and you've mentioned some of them in your very generous intro, um, I keep coming back to Turner he's He's like a sort of um, black hole of interest. You can never really escape the the pull back into thinking about things that he did and and how we might now contemplate them.
1: yeah, i I'm just astounded by the by the, your response to this question. I'm so glad that I asked because I think you have a very fascinating backstory that is maybe a little bit unusual in art history. I talk to so many scholars who just seem to 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 know about this discipline from I don't know from very early in their life and they pursue it very doggedly or Um, or, or some similar stories. Um, and I think yours is very inspiring in the sense that, you know, you can through living through life practice, realize something isn't right for you, like philosophy or advertising, um, and, and pursue, what does give you passion? I love this idea too of Turner as a black hole and, and as a kind of addiction or obsession. I mean, um, I think reading this book, I was so struck by the amount of mystery indeed that still surrounds him. And we'll, we'll have to dig into some of these more mysterious aspects that, that you do just an incredible job fleshing out just by the difficulties that, that Turner presents. Some and maybe it's it's a good idea to pause now since we keep talking about Turner and Turner as a black hole and Turner is amazing and all these things. And it's a maybe a banal question, but might you say just a little bit about who Turner was um, or is in art history for those listeners who might not be as familiar with the works of Joseph Mallard William Turner? We're talking about him like everybody knows who he is, but we should pause for a moment and make sure everybody does. So what quick spiel would you give about, about this looming figure in the history of art?
0: Okay. Um, that's such a challenging question, but you're quite right. Why should anybody be interested in Turner today? I mean, we're dealing with a guy who died in 1851. And um, is it really worth anybody's attention now, so many years later? But a, a nutshell biography goes roughly like this. He was born in 1775 in London, um, in Covent Garden, um, which I'm sure many of your listeners will have visited. His father was a barber and wig maker, and his mother, her family were wholesale butchers, also in London. His father came from Devon. He therefore started from a a fairly unprepossessing infancy, but so did many British artists. They tended to come from um, that stratum of society. He was very talented even even as a young lad, and, and became a student at the Royal Academy, which was just down the literally down the end of, of um, the road. The Strand in London leads all the way to where the Royal Academy was in those days, and trained there, and because of his gifts, was elected to associate of the Royal Academy and then full Royal academician at the earliest possible dates and was, um, to use a term that one really shouldn't bandy about too much, but was recognised really as having something very special about him and a a genius quality to what he was doing from very early on. By the time Turner was in his twenties, he absolutely dominated everybody's understanding of what landscape painting could do. And thereafter, through ceaseless invention in in technique, in materials, and the subjects he treated, in his range of intellectual references, pushed landscape to a significance that the kinds of people who founded the Royal Academy could never have imagined. Um, he entered the Royal Academy when Sir Joshua Reynolds was still its president, and yet he he died at the time when the Great Exhibition was on and steam. Technology was dominating Victorian Britain. So he lived over the most eventful sequence of events from um, the American War of Independence right through to the revolutions in Europe of 1848. And much of his art is is more than mere landscape. I'd like to stress that particularly. It's, It's always freighted. With ideas and concepts and references to modern society, to antique legend, to past history, to contemporary history, to social factors, to science, technology, etc., 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 which makes it formidably difficult to interpret any one painting by Turner. You can see at so many different levels that it's, it's like a polyphonic choir, let's put it that way. Um, you don't get a simple narrative. You get a convoluted one. And modern Turner scholars have to spend a, a great deal of time, I think, um, doing their best to untangle what for him was something that he could, he could always see as um, necessarily complicated. Well, it may have been necessarily complicated for Turner, but it's very difficult to make it simple for us now. And peeling back the layers... To actually get on terms with Turner in the 1830s and 1840s is one of the things I've been trying to do with this book.
1: And I I think you do it really well. It's well said, too, in terms of peeling back the layers. I want to ask, and I I have to say I appreciate you too, being able to summarize what is a, a really vast career and in a nutshell like that. That's not an easy thing to do. That may be the hardest question I actually throw at you, but This is, if I'm correct, your fourth book on Turner. I'm looking at the list. So there's the one I mentioned in the intro, J.M.W. Turner, The Making of a Modern Artist. There's the Turner book. Then there's J.M.W. Turner. And now there's this one on the late style. So I want to ask, how did you come to write this one? And certainly correct me if I'm wrong about about your scholarship on Turner more broadly. Why this particular intervention in this moment?
0: Well, it's a, there's a double route to this. Um, as well as writing those books, I've, okay. I've curated exhibitions on Turner, and I was involved quite recently at Tate Britain with a show that did travel to the States and, and to Canada um, on Tur- Late Turner as well. It was called, um, well, I think it was called just Late Turner. I'm trying to remember, it must have had a subtitle which has gone completely out of my head. Oh, yes, um, Painting Set Free, that was a subtitle. And in putting that together and looking at the critical responses that that exhibition received, I was struck by something that had always been at the back of my mind, which is this, and you alluded to it in your introduction. Most art critics, most members of the public, I think, believe that Turner's late works are his most important works, but they believe it in a particular way. I think it's because we are people who have lived with modernism all our lives, we don't have any problems with abstract art, and um, we pay attention to um, technique as much as we do to subject. And there's been a, a recurrent trend to say that Turner is at his greatest the more he looks like an impressionist or even an abstract expressionist. And that in a sense is saying that we can remake Turner in our own modern image And That was how the critics took that exhibition. I thought, well, yes, that's fine. I'm on many a day very prone to do that myself, but it's not, of course, what he was trying to do. He was trying to produce paintings that he felt had relevance to his times, and um, not merely in terms of subject, but in terms of the kind of style he adopted. This was a response to the world of the 1830s and 40s. And we tried to put that across in the exhibition, but the critics weren't having it. They just retreated to that normal idea of Turner anticipating the modern movement, or Turner being the first impressionist, or Turner being like Rothko. And I thought, well, um, without wanting to throw a bucket of cold water over all of that, because there is an element of that, which I'm very sympathetic to, I thought it would be necessary to go back to basics and say, okay, let's really take Turner's measure in terms that he would understand as he was in his old age from the age of 60 in 1835 until his death in 1851.
1: I think that may be what I was so struck by about the book was its the only word I can think to describe it is its situatedness in the period. Uh, The amount of material that you summon and muster and quote from and discuss really does embroil the reader so firmly in exactly the era that you're describing, the the late 1830s through his death in 1851. Um, And I I just found myself, you know, sort of swimming in, in the material in terms of how you recreate it, and I'm glad you mentioned too the the exhibitions that, and I, I should have maybe said a little bit more in the intro about the the relationship you have to to curating um, shows and 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 this material in particular. But I think this leads us really nicely this idea of situatedness into the book itself, which I want to describe for listeners in very broad strokes. It's nine chapters. It, it is a, a a dense book in the sense that there's uh, I'm sure you're already getting the sense from the way I'm describing it. There's so much packed into these nine chapters. And I will also mention it is one of the most beautifully illustrated books I've seen in a long time. Um, Yale university press, of course, always does a phenomenal job, but the amount of full color, full page detail, high res images (laughs) As if Turner isn't glorious enough, the you know the book just sparkles in that regard. There's not a single moment where I felt myself, oh, I wish I could see this image while while it's being described or discussed. It it was right there every time. So, the first chapter, which is called "What's in a Name: Late Works and Late Style." is a, a, a broad assessment, almost one that I think should maybe be assigned beyond just the study of Turner, of what we mean when we talk about late style in art history. So what does that term mean? Who qualifies for getting this you know, quantifier in their work? When did this originate as a term? What's the difference between late style and old age style? Um, it read to me, very interestingly, as a kind of introduction um, And it even included a chapter breakdown at the end of it in terms of what's ahead. So the first question is finicky, but it's a stylistic one. I wondered why the first chapter wasn't an introduction and why you decided to embed it in as chapter one, as opposed to bracketing it off like so many authors do.
0: Well, ultimately, that chapter was meant to be an exercise in dragon slaying. Um, One of my motivations for this book is an impatience, an impatience with late style, because it's used pretty casually by people who should know better. It's as though people still hold on to a notion that was very big in the 20th century, that the late works of all great artists have something in common, which means if you want to understand the late work of somebody, all you have to say is it's their late work as though we all knew what that entails. Now, I I went into some detail in this chapter to show that this notion of late style is actually pretty poorly defined. People think they know what they mean by it, but they don't actually pause to think, what exactly is it? And it has all sorts of bad implications. It's rare for women artists to be allowed to have a late style, which... um, is obviously wrong. Yeah. It's applied principally to the Western canon, as, um, which indicates that although everybody says it's a universal phenomenon, it, it doesn't really hold. And it's also really only, it only makes sense for post Renaissance art. Um, so all these claims for it being universal founder in gender terms and they founder in history terms. Moreover, people seem to think it explains so much when I think it explains so little. I believe there are late styles. If you want to just um, formally say this is the work an an artist did in his early career, let's make it her her early career. This is the work an artist did in her late career. That's just a chronological distinction. Fine, we get that. But if you say that the work she produced in her late career is explained by the fact that it's late... (laughs) you're just involved in circular reasoning. So I wanted to to say, let's look at the kinds of things people say about late style. Let's lay them all out in front of the reader. And then we can see whether or not Turner, who is always included in these lists of artists with a great late style, whether his work matches up to these criteria, fuzzily defined as they are. And what the book does, at least I hope it does, is by going into detail, and as you said, swimming in it, I do hope not drowning in it, by going into detail, we can see whether the claims for late style. (laughs) you, You didn't drown, good. Whether the claims for late style are helpful or an encumbrance. And my assessment, it's a bit of a spoiler, this, spoiler alert, my assessment at the end of the book was that in many respects, they're an encumbrance, that we do better to to get rid of anything we anything we think we know about late style and and get back to the situationness the situatedness as you said Alison it's it's a very helpful term because that explains so much more and rather than uh, trading in airy generalizations we can get into specifics and that in my view honors the art more than a generalization ever can.
1: Yeah, very much so honors the art. I like I like that too. I'm going to have to hang on to that. I think it might be helpful and I really I mean I can't recommend if 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 readers are going to read any chapter of this beyond just in being interested in Turner, I just think that this first chapter is is something that could be assigned in seminars on Titian on seminars on Rembrandt, on Louise Bourgeois. I mean, everyone who's talked about in terms of late style and how limiting as as you say, and as you ultimately conclude, that notion is to understanding the complexity of artists who have lives and careers like Turner. I was personally so struck at the very beginning of this chapter, I think it's the first, like when you turn the first page, you have two reproductions of, of Turner paintings right next to each other, one on top of the other. Um, it shows a work from 1815 next to one from 1850, and I, I, I just, it took my breath away a little bit. I mean, it, it gave me that, almost like that belly flip situation that you get when you're riding in a car and you go down a hill too quickly. Um, because it was so apparent that, that changes, real changes, occurred in Turner's work over time, just from this one flash of, of a comparison of images. So, might you say since obviously people listening to this don't have the luxury of that that page in your book right in front of them can can you quantify descriptively how turner's style changed over time again for listeners who may not be as familiar with what he looks like in 1815 versus i agree with you what are his more popular works from these last decade decades of his life
0: yes i'll i'll give that a go um the first and most obvious change, which uh, anybody who's heard of Turner, I'm sure will will expect me to say, is the intensity of light and colour in his last period of production compared to his early years. Chromatically and tonally, the pictures are extremely striking, very unlike anything his contemporaries were doing, and they still stand as beacons, I think, in the history of art for um, the word you used earlier, their audacity. The second thing to say is that if you look at an early work, it's indebted to the European traditions of landscape painting. You think of Poussin, you think of Claude, so that you have objects that sit in their own space. They occupy the right volume. They are um, locally coloured in such a way that they are distinct as objects within the visual field. Whereas when you look at a late work by Turner, that tradition has been replaced by something in which the defining contours of objects are now no longer distinct in that way, and that there's an overall treatment of handling which tends to meld objects, atmosphere, material, Immaterial into one visual envelope. So, um, as many of his critics said, it, it's 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 like um, gazing with your eyes half open. Um, now, there are reasons for this, which the book explores in one of its chapters. But if I can uh, preempt that, I mean, my reasoning goes like this: that progressively over Turner's career, two things happen. First the gap between the sketch and the finished picture narrows so that one finds in his sketching from very early in his career many of the features that you see in these late paintings. But it had been inadmissible when he was a young man to put on public exhibition works with such a sketch-like finish. By the end of his career, he's in charge, he's in command, and he's quite prepared to do that. That's, at a formal level, the first reason for the change. But the second, I think, is this, and it's quite profound – Because of his connection with and friendliness with contemporary scientists, he was aware that Victorian science had adopted a very holistic attitude to the visible world and talked about visual phenomena and underlying physical laws as demonstrating a holistic representation, if you like, of the world. One of his um, friends, Mary Somerville said, if you want to understand sound, look at the ripples left by a paddle steamer on the surface of water as it goes by you. And this idea of, of nature being an interwoven oh. complex of, of similar phenomena, I think, played very happily into Turner's notion of an all-enveloping visual field, that by breaking down the distinctions that he'd had in his early career to present this more unified appearance, he was getting close to some of the revelations that contemporary science had had.
1: Mm-hmm. I was struck too. There, there's not to spend forever on this first chapter. I just found it so rich. There's there's a lot to kind of puzzle out just in how you lay the groundwork for the rest of the book. But one of the other things that you allude to, I think, in a very necessary way in this discussion of late style and old age style more broadly um, is the central problem of kind of medical understandings of Turner versus art historical ones and the interest that has plagued him in particular, though certainly this is something that plagues other artists who experience debility at the end of their life. I always think of Manet suffering from syphilis in France at the end of the 18th century as also being one who gets talked about in terms of how does his physical breakdown affect his painting practice? But um, you talk about this interest in diagnosing debility for Turner, and you get into it in later chapters in the book more profoundly, but you kind of begin to puzzle through in this first chapter, um, discussions of mental and physical health of aged artists more broadly, um, and how they're deployed as biographical background, rather than as a kind of limiting factor in the production of their work. And I'm so interested, I think, right now, in my own research, in the role of biography in art history, in how we carefully and you know sort of walk this minefield of how to use what actually happens in a person's life and what physically and mentally occurs in in the case of someone like turner in our assessments of their pictures so so how do you handle this problem because i think it's one that particularly plagues turner as you point out in this first chapter and then and then continue to, to have to explore in later ones how much should we refer to the sheer biographical data as we try to investigate the reasons why pictures look the way that they do?
0: It's, it is a very big question. And as you say, I, I go into it quite extensively um, for two reasons. I mean, the immediate one is that he was the victim of a great deal of knocking copy during his life, that his mind had gone, um, that his hand had gone, Um, and that his eyesight had deteriorated. And these accusations were continued after his death. And and many people still say, oh, yes, he was probably suffering from cataracts. That's why the late pictures look the way they look. Um, Something which is entirely refuted if you look at his sketches when he's painting from the motif and his colour registration is, is perfectly fine. But there is the issue of biography, because he was certainly, I would say, um, in his last five or six years of life, um, he was prone to illnesses. He was losing his strength. He gave up on his foreign touring. So it's as though the horizon of possibilities that Turner had had as a mature artist is shrinking. Now, I think this is where the interplay of creativity and biography becomes most interesting, because... Many artists, one thinks of um, the age of Renoir, of um, maybe Matisse, even de Kooning, they make accommodation with the situation they find themselves in. and Rather than looking at their works as examples of a sort of symptomology, oh, look, I I can see the syphilis in that brushstroke, or there's the cataract manifesting itself there. We should, we should stop doing this. We should say artists are actually intelligent, self-aware people if they need recourse to another means of expressing what they need to put on canvas or the medium they're involved with. They will find it. And I think one of the great things about looking at the late works of artists is that it completely refutes the old interpretation that it was an inevitable decline. And instead, these coping mechanisms demonstrate there's a there's a kind of genius of accommodation which old artists can find, which allows them to be as forceful even if their means have diminished. I think in Turner's case, there's there's no doubt at all that after about 1846, so this is the last five years of his life, his output goes down, and as a result, one has to say he's husbanding what reserves he has to, to make sure that what he paints still counts for something. But I'm not going to write it off and say this is merely the kind of um, futile doodlings of an incapacitated old man. I'm, I'm going to say, no, the, these are serious efforts by somebody who recognized what his limitations were and coped with it.
1: Well, I think it, it follows maybe logically, since I'm asking you what I, I will admit is a huge question about biography, and maybe it's a little bit unfair. I, I find myself in every interview I've been doing lately asking about the role of biography in art history, maybe for kind of self-indulgent purposes. But the next chapter, chapter two, which is called Turner's Later Works and Contemporary Criticism, really is where you launch into, as I've been describing it, like this thick discourse that surrounds everything you're describing in terms of how his works changed over time. You really make it clear that reviews of Turner's late work were mixed, which I think is important to focus, not so much always on just the negative, though you do spend a lot of time trying to understand these negative reviews and going through them. Um, But all of these accusations that Turner's mind was failing, you focus a great deal on Ruskin, John Ruskin's assessment, one of the most important critics in the British realm in the 19th century, maybe in the European realm more broadly. And there's a little bit, a very juicy morsel of discussion of Turner's quote-unquote moral failings. And this is where you mention, as I think one should, the erotic drawings that have gotten a lot of press in in the recent years. A discussion of the quite salacious biography written by Thornbury. So... Amidst all this, it's a very broad question, but I wonder what was the biggest discovery you made in writing this chapter and exploring at such great length the the contemporary criticism that surrounds these final years of his production? Is there one single thing that really stood out?
0: Well, I suppose the the thing I, I feel was most important and the thing I suspect that will get me into most trouble was my critique of Ruskin, because everybody knows who knows anything about Turner that Ruskin put himself forward as Turner's great champion and defender. And indeed, when um, the first volume of his famous book, Modern Painters, was published in 1843, Ruskin put there that um, you know Turner had been traduced by the critics and he was riding to his rescue. And this, in large part, is certainly true. But, but. But it was also Ruskin who, after Turner's death, about six years after Turner died, began to put it about that Turner had suffered a collapse, that his last works were negligible, and that his mind had gone in about 1845. And what I put in the book was, I think they had a blazing row in the autumn of 45. that exactly the moment Ruskin says Turner's mind goes later because Turner had tried to up the price of watercolors he was producing of Switzerland from 80 to 100 guineas, and, and Ruskin felt that his honor had been called into question, and they broke off their relations, it seems. And it's curious that he when he starts revising modern painters um, that autumn, he starts introducing snarky little critiques of Turner's work for the first time. So... Um, My view is that that Ruskin is an unreliable witness. There's a lot of what he says about Turner that's very good, very insightful, and still valuable even today. But there are things about Turner's biography which have really thrown a very long shadow. If Turner's great champion says that you can write off everything after 1845, what happens with unsigned and undated works is that people tend to say, okay, okay. Around about eighteen forty five then for that, as though Ruskin has pulled the, the door shut <laughs> on, on what could happen in the next six years. I don't think we should accept it. I, I think Turner, as I was saying in answer to your last question, husband his resources, carried on working, and we might I mean you might say, well, it's trivial five years here or there, but it actually it matters a lot because we'd be able to to say that Turner's latest works was a bigger volume of production if we start thinking, you know, this is quite feasibly, 1846, 1848, 1849, etc. So so I think that that was the first one. And the second one, I had a much bigger resource, in this is in general terms now, rather than a specific thing, because so many newspapers are now online. I've been a beneficiary of that. And whereas earlier commentators on Turner's critical reception, you know, you had to go to the British Library, newspaper archive and literally turn the pages by hand. Using online resources, I was able to get hold of a lot more criticism than has ever been assembled before, and that has balanced the picture. As I, as you pointed out, I made a made a thing of saying, you know, there's a lot more positive criticism for Turner than Ruskin ever let on. So I, th- I think the the critical reception of Turner, there was a great deal of knocking copy and negative re- critique, but it wasn't as 100% biased as Ruskin seems to suggest it was.
1: Mm-hmm. This leads me to want to skip ahead a little bit, if we can, um, to to Chapter Four, which you call self awareness in the late works, and you discuss further Turner's specific relation to criticism. Um, I loved this idea that he was maybe courting favorable reviews earlier in his career uh, in the eighteen teens and eighteen twenties. I also love this idea of you questioning whether Turner ever read Modern Painters, the great Ruskin uh, text, and I think the you do a, a really convincing job. We'll see what other scholars, you know, specific Turner specialists have to say about it, but this idea of Ruskin as an unreliable witness, as you just put it. And, and Ruskin maybe is sometimes quite petty. Um, he does come across in certain moments, especially in his relationship, his short-lived relationship with his wife, where he seems to, to similarly question her mental stability after they have an epic falling out that many will, will already know about. And the way that you map that onto his relationship with Turner Ooh, I just, I thought that was quite brilliant. I mean, it's a real sleight of hand, uh, art history style that you do that. But in chapter four, you you make a good case for the hostile criticism that Turner received hurting him. And you discuss uh, the way that he recycled certain lines. You know, we have all these kind of testaments to him seeming to be very fixated on certain lines of criticism and, and, and then plaguing him in really interesting ways. I was so fascinated by the culinary metaphors, which just came out of nowhere for me, um, that the critics summoned, and and which you quote from continually, I'll say a few of them. There were analogies uh, between his paintings made and eggs and spinach. Um, Some critics called his compositions or or said his compositions were, quote, um, in which salad oil abounds. Um, Another said he has chosen to, quote, Paint with cream or chocolate, yolk of egg or currant jelly, and on and on and on. I can't help it but want to ask do you find this criticism of other painters at the time? And I mean, obviously, your focus was on Turner, so I don't know how much you you looked at criticism more from this time beyond what was directed at turner but i just i can't think of anything in in the equivalent russian context since that's my focus or or really even very much in the french context that i i dabble in sometimes so how unusual are these culinary metaphors or how unique are they to turner
0: um for culinary metaphors um i think he attracts practically all of it what it signals is a real discomfort with the materiality of his surfaces. They're not playing the game. The, the polished mm-hmm. academic surface is what should be the acme of good painting. And by making the materials of art practice so visible, this kind of criticism wants to demean him because cooks are low in the social hierarchy for a Victorian commentator. They're saying that this is unworthy of the high intellectual standing that a, a royal academician should be involved with. The, the only artist who, who runs the same gauntlet, but, but not so much with um, kitchen metaphors, is John Constable, Turner's um, contemporary, who's also accused of having a very coarse application of paint and that this is somehow uncouth and, and and rather equivalent, as one of them says, to dropping an H when you speak. So it's sort of a Cockney idiom, as it were, which I'm sure Constable must have really hated because he mm. came from a rather wealthy <laughs> background. But I think that the whole the whole business of the culinary metaphors is is literally to um, to say this isn't art. This is this is something uncomfortable. It's, it's in our terms. To think of a more recent artist, it's it's the way that. Um, um, Art Informel, Buffet, for example, made surfaces that were quite repellent to members of the um, critical community when they were first exhibited. We, of course, being good modernists, love this kind of thing. We we love um, interesting techniques. Um, Facture, materials, we're used to it. But I think in the circumstances of the 30s and 40s, these things must have looked really quite appalling to conservative-minded critics.
1: Mm-hmm. i It makes me really want to everything you just said to, to kind of change or recalibrate the way that I teach Turner. And I think some of the criticism that you muster with all of these kitchen metaphors really might strike students at, uh, and, and help them understand the. We keep using this word, but the audacity in critics' mind, in viewers' minds, in his own time, because as you have said, you know, thinking about Turner in historical hindsight, we know the impressionists are coming. We know Rothko is coming, and we are, as you just said, so comfortable with the the materiality of paintings being visible in the way that they've come to be under the conditions of modernism. But I, I think that. Partly what makes Turner so wonderful and so challenging when teaching him are conveying the vibrancy, the thickness, the, the intensity of the surface qualities of the paintings. And I always find myself showing really, really extreme tight detail photographs of his paintings as I, you know, I show the like the entirety of, of one first, and then I really zoom in very tight and, and show students. To recreate what it's like to stand in front of them. Do you have any techniques? This is departing from the book a little bit, but obviously you you must teach Turner. You probably have taught Turner a great deal over the course of your career. What have you found are are the sort of best ways to convey these things that we're talking about um, to students? I mean, I guess students there probably have easier access to Turners than mine do here in Louisiana, but have you found anything that really makes him shine in that regard?
0: Well, in many respects, I, th- I think your technique of close up is is very effective. Um, I find for most students, um, particularly students who are impatient with historical art as they would see it and would much rather be talking about contemporary art that the best way in is is through the detail and the sketch, because that gives you a sense of the the creative practice that lies behind the image. And once you've established the notion that this is um, electric art, I think you can, as it were, pan out and then take stock of um, the more conventional aspects of of image making in this period. Um, And If I were teaching Turner now, I think I probably would start uh, towards the end of his career and then say to them, pulling my rabbit out of a critical hat, ah, but you see, he was making sketches like this at the very beginning of his career. So now we can look at the work he produced in the 1810s and think to ourselves, well, this is the same mind. And if you were excited by that produced in the 1840s, you should be as excited by this produced in the 1820s. Mm
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I love this idea of electric art. And I I do think Turner, especially because the book is so gloriously illustrated with these really wonderful tight details, which I think you did a beautiful job. I'm assuming it's you, though I'm sure the editor had a good deal to do with it, too. But these these details of certain portions of work, which are then reproduced in 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 their entirety in, in other sections, really does convey the kind of electric intensity of his canvases and and how rippling the surfaces sometimes are so different from the academic realism and and the practice that you are alluding to. There was one other thing in this chapter, and this might be a little bit self-indulgent, but I also was struck by a piece of criticism you included in chapter four that recommended Turner examine a Titian painting, his Bacchus and Ariadne, um, in order to improve his practice. Um, So I wanna read a portion of it because I I think it it might be a good selling point for for how the the book reads in terms of, you really do quote at great length um, from from the criticism and then discuss it really, really deeply. So the reviewer said, of that work by Titian, quote, it possesses the advantage of containing the medicine which may cure a gifted artist of his most pernicious vagaries, provided he will take a course of doses of it after the fashion which we prescribe. Every morning, fasting, one hour study of the weeds and flowers depicted in the foreground. This regimen to be continued until Mr. Turner shall have become adequately impressed with the conviction that the great masters of his art never disdained even the most minute definition, and that the indecision, disorder, and unfathomable ambiguity at present in vogue are the invention of modern times and the cherished offspring of modern incapacity and indolence." (laughs) Well <laughs> so this is written in eighteen thirty-nine when get this everybody, Turner is sixty-four years old when he's being chastised in this particular way. Um, I when I did the math, I just couldn't believe it. And it, it made me feel so deeply for Turner and and how this hostile criticism must have hurt have hurt him um, and must have stuck with him. Um, it just strikes me as such a, a find. I'm not even sure when I want what I want to ask you about it, but were you too just as you made your way through all these wonderful online or digitized resources at your fingertips now, was your breath just sometimes taken away by the by the things these critics said? I, I just can't even imagine being someone like Turner at this late moment when he's been painting his whole life being told, you know, with a finger wagging in his face, go go look at the Titian weeds yeah. again, and you'll remember how to paint.
0: It it is pretty upsetting, isn't it? Um, before I answered this question, just to re- go back slightly, you said how well the book had been designed. I want a, a shout out to the whole team mm-hmm. at Yale who did an absolutely fab job. Um, don't give me the credit for them for that. Give it give it to Yale. Um, they, they they exceeded every expectation I had for the book. Right, now, back to your question. Of course, yes, finger wagging. But um, if if I can be slightly rude, um, the following year, 1840, Turner exhibit exhibits at the Royal Academy his own painting of Bacchus and Ariadne, which riffs on that Titian and does it without any detail of weeds or any of the things he's been recommended to do. And in a sense, gives his critics the finger. It it is the most amazing piece of refutation in paint. It said, all right, you want me to study Titian? Here it is. And this is what happens when Titian is upgraded to the circumstances of the modern age. This is what modern painting requires. You asked for it. Here it is. Suck it up. I, I think it's the it's. To me, that was one of the most exciting parts of the book that Thurneau comes out swinging against his critics when so often one has stories of him, you know, weeping with fury at how badly he'd been treated by them, but this time he took them on. And um, the, the picture is, is an entire um, sort of up yours to what he'd been recommended to do in 1839
1: indeed i am so glad that, that that's kind of the direction that you took my pointing out just this one section of criticism hoping it whets the appetite of all of our listeners to get the book and and really delve deeply as as you do or along with you into all these all these moves that turner's making sometimes responding sometimes not responding if i Back up a little bit, and obviously we, we won't be able to get through the whole book in terms of discussing every every discovery that's made in every chapter. Um, but chapter three was a real revelation for me, too. Uh, that chapter is called Constitutional Context. And it examines most profoundly Turner's production from the 1840s, as you say, with his mental health in mind. And this took some some real deftness, I think, a real lightness of hand, because it, it probably is, the, in some ways, the most biographical of chapters. Well, there are other moments when, when the book necessarily needs to become uh, uh, biographical in that way. But you really take on trying to understand these accusations, Ruskin and many others, of senility in his late years, the issues with his vision, as you've already mentioned, in terms of did he have cataracts, and okay, we know he wore spectacles, but that doesn't seem to necessarily mean he had any serious eye disease. Um, but you, you talk in this chapter, the third, about him having his remaining teeth In 1851, which seems to begin the decline that ultimately is going to lead to his death. Um, And, I I mean, I just, again, my heart just went out to this this old man fighting, as you said, coming out swinging against critics who would infantilize and patronize him, um, who who really did to suffer in his late years, you know, he struggled with probably alcoholism, maybe a form of, of depression. You mentioned in this chapter as well, um, this falling out with Ruskin, that's a real mystery is, is kind of at the heart of this chapter. So is there anything you want to tell listeners, you know, about your discoveries or some things that surprised you about exploring Turner in terms of real things that happened in his life as he aged in this last decade or so? What what do we really need to keep in mind that maybe art historians have lost sight of amidst all the mystery that surrounds him?
0: Well, I, I think the obvious thing that comes through is a, a kind of self-aware stoicism in the letters he writes about the ravages of old age and how much he'd feared getting to this position. On the other hand, um, yeah, I said earlier about making an accommodation. With old age, and his his personal physician had written a book about um, how you might extend your your useful life by living well, and yes, there are these rumors of alcoholism, but his physician himself had recommended, um, you know, if you're going to drink, drink sherry or spirituous liquors. And Turner went for rum. After his teeth were removed, of course, he couldn't eat. They tried making him some false ones; they didn't work. So he had to. Um, Basically, suck his digestion. So he, he drank a lot of meat, of milk, and everything else had to be mashed or sieved. It, it was a, a. It must have been a very painful final six months, and I think he probably didn't do anything at all um, between summer and and December of eighteen fifty one. I think up until then he he'd done with diminishing resources what he could. He probably painted very very little in oils because it meant standing and his legs were so weak and his arms would have probably you know just just standing at an easel would have been taxing and watercolor production then was easier which you can do sitting down um as for actual discoveries i think i think the thing i was most concerned to do was to just marshal all the evidence that exists in terms of uh records people made after the fact of, of his eyesight. And it seemed to me overwhelming that the accusation of cataracts is ill-founded, that nobody said they saw any sign of it. And in fact one of his colleagues said, I'm I've I'd seen people with blurred cataracts from having worked in the Middle East. And he said and and he put on record that turns were nothing like that. They were as bright as a child's. So I think the important point about this is that we pay attention to Turner's later paintings as deliberate things, not things that had his health, had his eyes, had his hands been better, would have looked different. But these are, things, these are purposeful things. Yes, they're painted by an ageing artist, but they were painted because he wanted them to look like the way they look. And um, although, of course... Um, many of the colours have sunk over time. His his preparation could be negligent, and some of them are, are nightmares from a restorer's point of view. Nonetheless, I I think they're they're not um, missed shots. These are all on target, and um, that he coped with the diminishing vigour of his last years. Mm-hmm.
1: So so beautifully put. I I am struck, of course, by this idea of uh... Stoicism, self-aware stoicism is a very good way to put it. Um, And I will only say, since I know I've already taken up a lot of your time, that the way that you marshal evidence, as you just put it in this book, and put it to use in terms of making interpretations, in terms of putting forward new ideas about an artist that we too often think maybe we we know enough about. Um, I can only tell readers that there are five more chapters uh, with the the thickness as I've described it uh, uh, and all of this wonderful marshalling of evidence that we haven't even begun to talk about. Um, I think in particular if you're someone working on late style and this idea, this conception in art history, this is wow this is the book for you so i want to ask you uh the traditional final question here on the new books network and that's just if you might indulge us by telling us what you're working on now what's coming next
0: right well thanks to covid what is coming next is something that would have been and gone by now but that is um an exhibition that's currently at tate britain called turner's modern world which looks at his whole career and all the pictures he painted that alluded to his life and times, um, political, um, social, technological, etc., etc., which is um, going to Boston um, after it's finished its time at Tate, um, probably over the winter period. So that that is coming. And other than that, I've just um, well, it's out for review at the moment. I've just completed a very long piece on Turner's slave ship, which is in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, to finally try to get to the bottom of what that picture is actually about. Um, and um, i I hope I have illuminated it and dispelled some of the fog. That has obscured it over the years.
1: Oh, I have to, I, I'm, I'm ready to almost squeal with excitement. The, that is usually the, the Turner painting that I teach, in particular in the survey course when we work through the Renaissance to the contemporary period. If I'm able to teach one Turner, it's almost always the slave ship. And uh, I have never been satisfied with the scholarship that's out there, despite my best efforts to assign various case study readings on that work. I, oh, I'm so glad I asked you because now I know to, to keep an eye out for this, this particular uh, I'm sure equally thick discussion of, of that, uh, such a remarkable and important work. Wow, Well, I really enjoyed talking to you about your book today. It's a fascinating new piece of art history. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss it with me and, and listeners today. We really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Alison. I really enjoyed chatting to you today.
1: All right. Well, my name is Alison Lee, and you've been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I've been talking to Sam Smiles about his new book, The Late Works of J.M.W. Turner, the artist and his critics. Thanks so much for listening.